What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Dish Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Dish Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Paul, how you doing? Welcome to the platform. Hey, good afternoon. How are you to say? I'm ready to get into this conversation. You know, I'm ready. I'm ready to uh, get deep on deep this conversations and uh, get into, you know, this this criminal legal system of ours. And so, um, you're a candidate for General Sessions Judge Division Six. That's correct. Right? How are you feeling about it? I feel that this is a an amazing time in our city, and I feel that this is a great time to be running for this position uh, with my background and qualifications and the fact that I know. Uh, how this animal works inside and out, and how that we can be in a position at this point of Na with Nashville and Nashville's voters to basically take control over how things are being handled in that court that court arena, actually. So I'm going to go ahead and start it off. Uh, what makes you more qualified than your uh, two opponents uh, that you're running against? Well, you know, that's an interesting question as far as more qualified. Everybody has their own qualifications. Everybody has some sort of experience. Everybody that, you know, has a law degree, uh, you know, you have, first of all, to be a judge, you have to have a law degree, obviously. Uh, it didn't used to be that way in Tennessee. We had judges that were judging cases that had never been to law school, which is crazy. seems yeah. insane. But how the system worked for a while, you know, to be commissioner, sometimes you didn't have to be an attorney. Uh, but now you do have to be an attorney, a licensed attorney. And uh, my qualifications, I think, stand on the fact that I've been practicing for so long and I've had a very heavy, intensive criminal practice, even though General Sessions covers civil cases too and we have a traffic docket and things of that nature. Um, and we have the MTMHI docket, which uh, deals with uh, people that are being held for mental issues or, or reasons. But the main... I guess the majority of the work in General Sessions Court is criminal-oriented. Right. Um, and with uh, two, two fel uh, we have a felony jail docket, a misdemeanor jail docket. Um, we have four or five um, dockets that run uh, bond cases. Um, and then we, there's, there's some of the judges that are specifically for domestic uh, violence cases specifically. But the judgeship I'm running for does not handle, a, it's not a specialty court that handles just domestic uh, violence or, or just a certain amount of cases. It handles the whole circuit of cases. Right. So um, getting into your background, um, what inspired you to want to be an attorney? Well, being an attorney wasn't something that I started off doing. It wasn't that I sat back and said, hey, you know, I'm going to go to law school and I want to be an attorney. I was actually going to go to med school. I had medical background training. Um, my father was a physician here in town for many years, and, and I was the only one of the, of the three. Of, I, have three two, I have a brother and sister, so I'm one of three siblings, and I was the only one that wanted to follow my dad's career path. But things that happened in the 80s with the medical profession kind of soured me a little bit in the 80s and 90s from actually following through with that and so I decided to take a break before going to med school and I said let me sell some pharmaceuticals for a while I got a job after working for Al Gore for a little bit I, I got a job uh, selling pharmaceuticals which back then was an amazing and I mean it's still a great job mm -hmm. uh, being a pharmaceutical salesman but back then that was like 
whoa, right. easy peasy, great life, uh, free car, free expense account, free this, that, the other. And so while I was doing that, my father uh, called me up one day and he said, what's the end goal here? He says, are you going to go to professional school? Are you going to go to med school? You're going to get back into that? Or what, what's your plan? And at that point, I, I felt the pressure to get a professional degree of some sort. My brother and sister were lawyers. And so I applied to law school. I got in. Um, I still worked pharmaceuticals for a year while I was in law school. And then all of a sudden, I started getting interested in what we were studying. Right. Um, so I was there at UT, and I, I was loving it. And, and the, all of a sudden, the little pieces and you know synapses right. started connecting, and I was like, "Hey, this is very interesting." Right. But I didn't necessarily see myself practicing law. Right. I just liked the fact that I was going to get a professional degree. Right. I, my true love at that time was cars. It's still a love of mine. I buy and sell cars on the side. I I, I like to collect cars, um, and I had an idea of having a great car dealership. Mm-hmm. So when I got out of law school. I, my dad gave me some money to invest and try to start a, a car dealership. But then I got a call from a friend who got a DUI. And he says, hey, you're a lawyer. Can you help me? And he was a good friend of mine. I said, yeah, I, you know, I'm licensed and I've right. been sworn in. I said, let me, let me see what it's like. And so I went to help him out and I got him a good deal. And from then on, I was hooked. And so a couple of the judges noticed me at the courthouse, knew my dad. And they said, hey, why don't you come up here more often and things of that nature. And I started getting cases and Right. The next thing you know, I'm in full-blown practice. So before you got into law, right, how did you picture, like, our legal system here in the United States? Did you ever think about that? Have you ever been affected by that in any way? Or what was your proximity to it? The only – I had seen uh, my dad handle a couple of lawsuits. You know, he had attorneys and things of that nature. And the only connection with courts that I had at that point were tickets. And I had received, there was a place here, a lot of people might remember, there was a little town in between, uh, in between Madison and Hermitage called Lakewood, and they had a speed trap. And I got my first ticket that I ever received there and the last ticket I ever received there. Um, and, and so my, my thing with the, with the legal system that's pretty much all I knew. I'd never gotten in any trouble or anything like that. But when I, when I had that first ticket, I'll never forget, I, had a, I was 15 years old. I got pulled over driving a friend's car following my pastor. And so, of course, I'm, I'm a young black kid driving a car, um, following my pastor, going, and everyone knew that was a speed trap. And the officer pulled me over, and he accused me of going 80 miles per hour in a 45. I think it was 40 or 45 at the time, which was impossible, first of all. Right. I, I'd never been driven that fast in my life, and I was 15 years old. Right. And I went to court, and my brother went to court with me, and I'll never forget how the judge treated me, and he just basically didn't believe me and said, why would the officer lie? But I knew it was a lie. Right. And I'll never forget how I felt that day. So the last ticket I got there, was when I was a, uh, a 3L. Um, I was in the middle of my 3L year. I got a ticket there. And of course, I knew the area. I right. knew not to speed through the area. I got a ticket, and the police officer pulled me over. And I'll never forget, he walked up to my car, and he spit tobacco on my car wow. while he wrote me a ticket. And I said, sir, I was not going the speed that you're saying I was going. 
And he says, well, you can tell that to the judge. And I'll never forget going back to school and how mad I was. And I created this chart and I started writing down everything I remembered about the stop and everything. And I'll, when I went to court on that ticket, the judge, there was a full courtroom of people and the judge called my name and I went up there and he says, you can be representing yourself. And I said, yes, sir, I am. And I started taking out all the graphs and charts that I had prepared and I was gonna light that officer up. And I'll never forget the judge looked at me and it was the same judge to give me the, it was the same judge the still same, at that time. Same judge. Yes. And he's, he looked at the officer, he looked at me, he looked at the people in the room, and he says, well, you know what, with all the work this young man's done, I think I'm just going to assume that he's going to win this case. I'm going to go ahead and dismiss this ticket. Wow. And that's when I realized the power of being prepared right. and standing up right. and not backing down. Um, the power that you possibly can have in things. And so and it's kind of carried over. And I always remember that story when I'm thinking about things that have happened to me and things that have happened to other people when I see what they're going through and listening to your clients. Because a lot of people say the client probably did it right. when they're accused of a crime. But the thing is that assumption is a terrible assumption to start off a case with. So I tell my clients, tell me, I don't care if you did something really bad. You tell me exactly what happened so I can always be more prepared than the other person that's going to be accusing you of something. What are some of the, um, the cases that you, that you worked on as an attorney and to this point that, you know, it feels it has prepared you and readied you to be, you know, um, criminal, I'm going to say criminal court judge, general justice judge for Division 6? I, I think there's accumulation of cases. Right. There's accumulation of cases. I've, I've, I handle simple cases. I handle simple possession cases, trespass cases. I represented a police officer the other day on a trespass case, all the way up to homicide cases. I just finished a five-day trial this past week, um, a first-degree homicide case. And I, ha I handle these cases in different counties. I've seen how all the different judges, how they operate. I see the different DAs, how they deal with people, um, relationships in how, who you know, how you know the judge, how you know the DA, how you know this person, that person, makes a difference in how cases can sometimes come out because a lot of it has to do with negotiation, a lot of it has to do with plea deals, a lot of it has to do with um, what the judge expects, what the judge will allow, what mm -hmm. the judge uh, will, will take on a plea deal or whether they'll accept a plea deal or not because sometimes judges won't accept a plea deal. Right. Um, and so over the 28 years of, of practicing and seeing what's been happening and how it's been put into action, I think all of those things prepare me. So I've, I've handled well over 10,000 cases. I, I, you know, on my, some of my materials I put up handled 10,000 cases, but it's far more than 10,000 cases that I've handled. But you know, you start quantifying and, and adding them up, right. that doesn't mean anything because every single case is a different case. Right. Every single person has their own story right. to tell behind the case. So I can handle 50 simple possession cases, but all of them are different. Right. How they interact with the police, how the police found the stuff, how, you know, whether they even had it, if it belonged to somebody else, they're all different. And the thing is you have to be able to pay attention to those nuances. Mm -hmm. And as a judge, hearing cases, it's important not to treat everything like a rubber stamp and just push it down the line. Right. It's important just to take the time and listen to see what's happening in the case and making good decisions and making sure that people's lives aren't affected. 
but in not, a negative way. But, uh, possibly being, you know, seated judge, um, and with your vast experience, right, as an attorney and seeing so many different cases, being in front of so many different judges in so many different counties is right as well. Um, what are, what are some things that you've noticed, right, that they can be reformed, they can be changed, that need a little tweaking to have a better, you know, justice system, um, as people like to say? Well, there's several things. I think that, that ge well, General Sessions Court mm -hmm. is a court where most people have the most contact with. Right. So it doesn't matter if your case is a huge case, a homicide case, unless your case is indicted, it starts off in General Sessions Court. So if you can imagine, it's, it's truly the people's court. So all these people that are coming in front of you, mm -hmm. whether they're witnesses, police officers, spectators, um, you know, defendants, lawyers, DAs, all these people that are coming in front of you, how your court is run, I think, affects how they feel they can operate. And I, I think that it's a living, breathing thing, the court system. And when people are coming in, I think some of the changes that we can make is make sure that it's accommodating to people, that people don't feel threatened when they come into court. People feel that they can express their ideas and opinions and, and be able to tell the truth. And that should be valued and that the judge will listen to them and, not, and the judge won't feel as if uh, I've gone to several counties where it doesn't really matter what you say. Right. Probable so we have what the level before we send cases up to criminal court in general sessions is probable cause, which is a pretty low standard. It's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So we have these things called preliminary hearings on felony cases or cases where people don't want to settle and they want to fight for their rights and they want a jury trial. The only way they can get to a jury trial is to if, if you have a misdemeanor is to send it up to criminal court or send it to the grand jury to see if it, the criminal court if they'll get indicted and go to criminal court. Right. So. A lot of attorneys don't trust the general sessions judges to make a good call. Mm. So, for example, if you have a misdemeanor and it's, you have an A misdemeanor, B misdemeanor, C misdemeanor, you could have a trial. You can say, you know what, I want to waive my right to have a jury trial. I think I have facts that I can win this case. Most attorneys don't feel comfortable having that hearing in front of a judge because the judges are not used to making the hard call. Which means more cases go up to criminal court, which backlogs cases. Right. The thing is, I want to run a court where people feel comfortable going ahead and having a hearing. Right. Going ahead and letting the judge make a decision and, and get those smaller cases out of the way and see what we can do. And, and I think one of the things that we can do is make sure that people know, know that. And then some of the other judges would start probably doing the same thing, right. realizing that it works. And that's, that's one of the things you can do. A second thing you can do besides make it feel more comfortable and besides making people feel like they can actually have their cases heard and finalized in that court. Another thing that I think we can do is I think judges can start utilizing their power to not accept certain pleas because sometimes a lot of judges don't open the jacket and read the facts of the case or say, hey, something's not quite right here. Telling the DA, say, you know, you guys might, I might not, I'm not going to accept this plea. You guys might need to rework this deal. Or we've seen where we can do something on a small case like this where we can maybe give the person a class or take it under advisement right. and, and maybe keep this off this young person's record if they don't have a record. Um, a lot of people burn what we call 4035, their judicial diversion, 45313. They'll burn their judicial diversion on a simple case 
when they might need to have that diversion for something serious that might happen later that they might need. Right. Um, so, and I see a lot of, and one of the other changes I want to make that I think affects people that have melanin in their skin and, mm-hmm. and Hispanics and other cultures, what I see happening a lot is people coming in and just taking a plea with a fine. Right. A time served sentence. Oh, it's no problem. They think they're good and they walk off. Right. Not realizing that can't come off their record. Not realizing that's going to keep them from getting a job. Right. Not realizing that's going to affect them in maybe schooling uh, or getting into schooling uh, in higher education. Not realizing that that's going to possibly set a trajectory for them that's going to make them fall shorter of where their mental abilities or where their social abilities. Right or educational abilities could have taken them, they're hampered and they're shackled by that. And that needs to change. Right. So simply, since we're talking about minorities, um, I'm going to go ahead and pivot here. You're a black man. Yes, sir. Um, how, what, what do you, why do you think is the cause of such high rates of minorities being incarcerated? Well, that's a, that's a really complex question. I'll see if I can answer part of what I think yeah, and yeah, what I've experienced and what, and what I've seen. There's a lot of mental, social, and socioeconomic training that has been going on for years and years. Some of it is how the system has been set up. Mm-hmm. Some of it is how... Police officers have been trained. Some of it has to do with how we as African-Americans have been hoarded and sectioned into certain parts of of the cities, the major cities Mm -hmm. in America. Um, And even in the smaller cities, you see the same thing where where black people are kind of like only in a certain area, with exceptions of, you know, people living in certain communities. There's a black part of town. There's a Hispanic part of town. The Kurdish people live here. The, you know, it, it, it's the same thing. It's, it's, it happened in Chicago. It's happened in New York. It's happened in a lot of cities where, where people accumulate. Sometimes it has to do with the fact that we want to be near people that look like us or that act like us. Or, you know, some of that has to do with, with us and, and the training that we've received and what we feel safe doing mm-hmm. as, as a people. Right. Um, but what inevitably happens is police are more concentrated in these areas. And the thing is, I go, I go back to a simple example. When I wear jeans and a T-shirt and go into certain malls um, south of town, I'm treated completely different. People watch me. They're following me around, assuming that I'm about to do something. When I'm dressed in a jacket or a suit, no problem. Right. People aren't following me around. People aren't saying, can we help you, sir? Right. Is there something you're looking for? Never get that. Right. And to, to be 2022 and that those kind of social things are going on, mm-hmm. that affects it. So what I think has happened is about 70% of the people that I see normally in court are a, a pers- people of color or another ethnicity. And I think what's happened is the police are concentrated on certain areas, one. Two, I think we help them with some of the things that we do to create some of the problems. I mean, simple things. Like I always tell my clients, I'm like, so you were smoking a blunt, driving down the road with your windows down, your stereo turned up, and your tags expired, and 
right. your lights are not working on your car. Right. You're asking for it. Right. You're just you're simply just asking for it. Um, the the things there's certain things that people do and don't do. So it, it, like I said, there's a, it's a combination of things. But right. but inevitably, what happens is we see more of us in court. Right. But another problem is we don't get some of the deals that some of the other people do. Sometimes it's because we're appointed counsel. We don't have enough money to hire an attorney. We're not paying attention to the judge's rules. And, you know, I know a lot of some of the judges, they lock people up if they come to court without an attorney, which I'm like, you have a right to come to court without an attorney. Right. That's not a reason to lock somebody up. Mm. They, say, we'll, they say, you want an attorney? We'll get you an attorney. I'm going to send you to the back and we'll get one appointed for you. Right. They just lost their job. Right. They may have lost their apartment now. Right. They may, you know, so, so these things are like, there's all these things that are functioning. So the question, the the real question though you asked was, why do I think more, more people, minorities are in, in custody or going through problems, whatever. And I think basically comes down to pure training. And I come, and I think it comes down to who gets caught and released. It comes down to who's getting citations and who's getting arrested. And I feel like once, once we have any kind of record, or we don't show up to court, right. or we don't do something, the thing is, it's already started downhill for us. And so I think, I think honestly, people with melanin in their skin, they started at a disadvantage right off the rip in the court system. Right. And I think judges need to realize that situation and be able to, be able to recognize that and to be able to alleviate some of the things that are happening uh, to those people when they come in front of the judges. And you, you brought up something that... Um that I think is is a is a hot topic uh, that should be broached more is um, appointed lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. So um, if a judge say the DA's office is backed up, right? They don't have anybody available, so the judge, so a judge can appoint a private attorney uh, to a case that is not affiliated with metro government. Okay. Um, some people feel like that might be a conflict of interest. Um, what is that relationship between the attorney and the judge? Um, it might go in the favor of a of a of a defendant, or it might go against. Just depends on the representation, right? How do you feel about that? And I guess as a judge, what kind of checks and balances could it be with appointed um, judge appointed attorneys uh, that judges can do to kind of say make sure you're representing that client properly, you're communicating with him or her, um, and doing all of those things, and not just kind of okay, I'm gonna appoint you. This is your attorney, and then like. That's it. Okay, so let's talk about the so the, let's talk about the public defender's office first and their right. role, and then let's talk about um, the, the court-appointed attorneys. If that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Break it down the, for us. The public the public defender's office here in Nashville is probably one of the best public defenders offices that I've ever come into contact with, and I travel to every single touch county that touches Davidson. I'm in counties further out. I'm in. I've handled cases in Memphis. I've handled cases in East Tennessee. But the thing is, my majority of my, my practice is Davidson County, and then I do the other counties. And I see how the public defenders act in the other counties and what they do and what they get accomplished. And I'm telling you, I'll put our public defender's office up against any public defender's office I've seen in other states that I practice in. Mm-hmm. Um, they are amazing, and they fight hard. And, and, and there's a training process. Some of them are new and whatever, and, and of course. But overall, they're amazing. But like you said, they get backed up. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. because they have a lot of cases. One. Two, they have conflicts. So if they've represented somebody in the past that might be a victim on a case in this case or they might have a pending case going on, then that conflicts them off. So then it kicks those people out that can't afford an attorney. So then the next step is for them, for them to contact the judge's office or to, to reach out to somebody to get a court-appointed attorney. And a lot of times the, the, the clerks for the judge or the judge's secretary, they try to do that. And sometimes it's done right there on the spot. You know, if we have victims or people there, we try to do it on the spot. Judges, I think, need to be very careful to look at the type of case that they're appointing just someone that happens to be in the courtroom that day that's a private attorney or someone that's seeking appointments. There's no problem with that. Those attorneys have gone through the same training. But the question is experience and whether or not they are in a position to handle the case properly. And so I think it's imperative that the judge is involved in making sure that when they're appointing a case that the person's up to snuff, up to speed, things of that nature. If a judge sees that the attorney they appointed is not doing that work or not putting the effort in to represent the person, the thing is there's nothing worse than someone feeling like someone's just trying to collect a check and doesn't care about the representation of the person. And the thing is, if the judge cannot see that, that's a problem. So a lot of judges haven't practiced for years. They haven't seen what it takes. They can't tell by looking at a case what happens. I can size up a case really quickly and say, okay, there's some problems here. This is where the attorney should be focusing or whatever, and and here are the issues and whatever. So as a judge, if you see that the attorney is not doing that, right away you need to say, okay, I don't maybe need to be doing that or maybe I need to get this other person a new attorney. The judge can do that. The judge can, can put the brakes on and say, you know what, we need to stop this hearing now or how the, how the conversation is going. I saw a, a case the other day where someone got appointed to a case and they tried to resolve a very complicated case in just a few minutes when they should have said, judge, I need to reset. Right. I need to take a look at this. I need to, you know, sit back for a second and try to try to talk to my client. They just launched right in. That's a bad position to be in. Mm-hmm. And, and because I do so many cases and because I've done so many cases right. and because I've seen this happen before and recognize who the players are, I think it's important and imperative that the judge, that, uh, whoever becomes a judge and whoever gets his seat has that understanding and sees it and can stop it right when it happens. But you, you're, and the second part of your question was basically asking about the situation with, you know, the, the, relationship, the relationship between judges. Some judges had their favorites. I mean, that shouldn't necessarily be, I don't think. I think they should basically just make sure that people are getting the proper representation. But then some judges are appointing people that they know can handle heavy cases and can handle very serious situations. So they don't want to hand it to somebody that's novice, that's just learning the practice. Um, And I also think that we need to reinstate the training programs that we have for all these young lawyers that are coming in that are practicing in the courts to make sure that they have the proper orientation and who to lean on and how to get help if you're having some issues. So I think some of those things could alleviate some of the problems. And I think people that are well-trained and and become judge should be able to influence how that's done and and maybe a, a change in how we do things because how it's done now sometimes is problematic. Cash bail, money bail. Okay. Hot topic. 
you know, um, should money even be associated with a human body? You know, um, is it is it fair that um, because somebody's poor and another person is rich is, you know, I have to sit in jail and they can get off and go home to their family, you know, for the same crime? Um, what are your thoughts on cash bill, money bill? Is there reform needed? Uh, what does that reform look like? If so, um, what are your thoughts? And I know a magistrate's, you know, generally sets bail amounts in Correct. court, but you know that may. But, ju but judges, judges can change. But ju but judges can change that. Judges can change that. So. So, this is a the, right now obviously a very hot topic because we realize who high bails and and bails affect the most. Right. Black people and poor people. Black people and poor people. Um, and and sometimes Hispanic people. And, people of and color. People, people, people pe of color. Pe and the work, it, it, it affects the poor people, working class people, and on a much larger scale, um, the minority, right. the minority uh, cultures, right. it, it affects us. Um, I think that when magistrates and judges are looking at bond, uh, and well, first of all, do I think that that cash cash bills should be allowed? Yes, I think they should be allowed because there are certain crimes that I think there needs to be some sort of monitoring. One, like there's different types of monitoring you can do, um, and I think there needs to be a cash amount if you relieve the person, like on a violent crime. Or, or things of that nature, those cases need to be looked at and reviewed, especially if it's a, not a, a one-time offender. First-time offenders, nonviolent offenders, um, you know, simple possession cases and, and things of that nature, I think should be citations, honestly. But if there is a bail to be set on something like that, I think it should be very low. And if they can't make it, it should be reviewed right away. Um, and I, and when I'm, when I'm saying right away, I think it should be reviewed within 24 to 48 hours. I mean, if it happens on a weekend, obviously some of the courts are not running, but I think the judges need to be reviewing those immediately to see whether or not, and reading those files to see whether or not these people should be incarcerated if they can't make bail or why it is that they haven't been able to make bail. Sometimes it's a simple issue of they, they can't make a phone call. Uh, but, but most of the time it's because they don't have the money. And so those things are things that a general sessions judge can do immediately. If he looks at a thing, and, and you know, the magistrates, they set bonds at different amounts. You know, so depending on the magistrates you get and whether they're in a bad mood or right. a good mood. Which, or, which, which is the confusion behind it because... Right, there's no, there's no rhyme or reason. Right. Um, but I've seen some very high bails on cases. I've seen cases where someone would normally... I, I used to be commissioner for, for a time, and I would set bails based on what it looked like it what like the situation was and what I thought that you know they can make and I would even ask the defendant can you make this kind of bail do you think you could make a $2000 bail which would cost you about $237 to get out can you make that and and try to talk to talk to them because the thing is set an amount that you think that they might be able to make or they think that their family can make because I think that's important but i mean if someone comes in on a homicide case and their flight risk or there's some issues or whatever, the thing is obviously the bail is going to be much higher. But I've seen people that have had low bonds on very serious cases and someone have a super high bond 
on a on a drug case that there was no you know there's no victim mm -hmm. and i'm like how how is that right how is that that this person and then i'm looking at the reading the warrant i'm like the they didn't even have very many drugs on them but the thing is because of how those laws were written you know you have over 0.5 grams it's a b felony hey we're going to set them a $50,000, $75,000 bond for having a half a gram of cocaine? Right. How is that? And I've seen that affect people over and over again. But then I see someone who has two grams of cocaine who might be Caucasian. They have a citation. And, and the thing is, when yeah, you see those, is, when you see those disparities, when you yeah. see those disparities, it, it, it upsets you. And, and when I tell other people this, it doesn't matter what their skin color looks like or whatever, their mind is boggled immediately. They're like, are you serious? That happens? Right. And I'm saying, oh, it's, it happens. I know, and I know the DA's office is trying now to, to back up and trying to say, hey, we're not doing that anymore. We're trying to, and the police officer, the police department, they're trying to back off and they're trying not to do that anymore or whatever. But it had been, the damage has been done. Right. The damage has been done. How do you undo that damage? How do you undo the damage that it's cost these people and people have like mortgaged their houses and taken all their, their life savings, mm -hmm. mothers, grandmothers, people that have worked these barely living wage jobs right. and they send their retirement getting their kids out of jail or their grandkids out of jail. And so I definitely think there needs to be reform. I definitely think they need to take a very good look at the magistrates and having definite orders of business and ranges for things. And I think they definitely need to utilize, um, you know, releasing people on nonviolent crimes quicker um, and, and getting, them, getting them the relief that they need. Accountability is a big thing. And court watch is one of those things um, that I feel community can really get a look at and see and, you know, how, how, how judges are practicing, how they're making their decisions, and just understanding what is going on in the courtroom because, you know, unless you, you know, have to be there, which, you know, we don't want you there, you may not know what happens. Um, do you support something like court watch um, here in Nashville and having an organization or just a, a organized body of people coming to see how you're ruling? Oh, 100%. I think if you courts should courts should be open to everybody. I know some judges don't like people using cell phones in court. Um, you know, if they're in, filming other people that are victims or whatever or trying to use it as intimidation or whatever, that's not proper. Obviously, you know that, that that's amp stuff up, or people just trying to do whatever to just agitate, throw throw gasoline on fire. But people should be able to come into the court. People should be able to come and watch what we're doing. People should be able to come and watch what the judge is doing. Open to critique. I've told people before. I said, if I become judge, and you and you know me, and you know how I act, and you know what I stand for, right. if you see me doing something that doesn't seem right or does not seem my personality of, of who, how I care about people and all people, and you see me doing something that's not right, right, I want you to come up and talk to me about it. Told attorneys that, told DAs that, judges. I think we should have peer review. I think we should also have 
people from the outside seeing how things are going. Right. Um, and because I want the, like I said, I want the court to be open and inviting to anybody and everybody. And so that no one feels like anything's happening. No back deals are being cut. No one's helping Johnny out because Johnny's dad supported Paul in his race or what. That shouldn't happen. You know, if there's a conflict of interest with me and in, in something that's happening, I want it out of my courtroom to another courtroom. And if there's a situation where someone wants to waive a conflict because, like, they say, oh, well, he represented my son or whatever, and I recognize them. Right. I will notify the I will notify the party saying, "Hey, listen, I just want to let you know I'm, I'm I feel comfortable hearing this case, but I know that person that's sitting with with the victim in this case, or I know that person that's the defendant's mother. You know, if, if that affects you guys, we can move your your case to another courtroom if you don't think I can be fair and impartial, because I think being fair and impartial and above board is the utmost importance uh, for people feeling that they're getting justice served properly. And um, to kind of pivot into that. Um people coming into the courtroom a lot of times you know a lot of the damage has already been done once people would come before you right um how can you see your role as well you know and just duty and being a civil servant to like prevent people from having to come before you and at all right what are some things you feel like you can either advocate for um be a part of speak up for that even, like that, that essentially, you know, I want to be put out of business. I want to be, I want, I want my job to be gone, right? Essentially, right? How, what, what are some things that you think that can happen before people reach you that can stop them from reaching you? You know, I think we all make choices and mistakes that we if we could reverse the time we would go back and say you know what i should have done this i i I could have done this better i could have responded to this better i could have acted in this way better i think that from a position of being a judge things that we can do is we see certain things that cause people to come in front of us in the first place right and the thing is, I think some of the advocacy needs to extend to go backwards and try to reach people and tell them what's going on. I think, I think them knowing what's going on in court, I think them knowing some of these stories, getting people to share. I think, you know, judges, we have cases that come before us where we can explain things to people and maybe some of the punishment um, without having a conviction could be someone else sitting in and talking to people in, in certain groups and going into schools and doing things. I think, I think as a judge, we could create some programs, and as judges, we can create some programs in Nashville where we're explaining what happens when you get to this point. Basically, kind of almost a prophylactic approach, you know, a preventative approach of trying to get there before people step off the cliff and pick up a charge. Right. Um, I think that the way the city's growing, there's going to be more and more cases, more and more things. We're getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and more people are wanting to come here for different reasons. But with those, with the the growth of Nashville comes more crime, comes more, more money means more crime. More crime means, you know, everything we need, we need more police or we need more activism we we need more of this we need more of that we need more of everything because the thing is that as you're filling up the pot 
the thing is you have to do something before it overflows, obviously. And so we need to be deep, we need to be, you know, scooping in and, and deep dishing, as you would might say, you might probably <laughs> like that, but we need to deep dish and scoop out some of the bad things and try to see and take a look at them and see what we can do. So I think we can have programs. I think we can get involved in schools more. I think we can have programs to get involved in schools where we advocate and come and tell them some of the stories that are happening mm -hmm. so that these young, the, the youth can see what's happening in our systems. We can have more of the, I think we should invite more of the schools to come in and, and see some right. cases to see what they're going through. Cause people think it's cute. And they think it's funny, but, you know, you have a group of kids sitting there and, you, and they see what's happening in court and how serious some of this stuff is. Right. I think maybe sometimes light bulbs start going off. Right. And I think that's one of the things. I mean, right, there's, yeah. there's plenty of things that we can do. Sure. But, I, but I think that's one of the things that I can think of right off the bat that we can get the community involved and get people involved. And I think it would also be good for the defendants that are going through cases and whatever if we have them on an under advisement plea where they have to speak at a couple of events and do a couple of events and talk to these kids and whatever, telling them what happened to them, tell them their story, right. help them to realize maybe this is a breaking point for me right. and I've been getting an opportunity to try to correct what I'm doing and influence these other people coming through. And that, 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 that makes me want to talk a little bit about restorative justice, right? Because, you know, their restorative justice pieces one you have to take accountability right you have to admit that you that you've harmed someone or harmed a family but i think yes. that also allows judges in the in the in the court system to take a deeper dive on why that person you know um did that offense um right why did you you know steal that purse why did you take that car why did you you know um commit whatever type of offense that you committed and it, it's layers right and you kind of mentioned this before it's layers underneath that mm -hmm. um so how how does restorative justice play into your rulings um as potential judge well i think that uh, a lot of cases i see in general sessions there might be a fight between girls that you know that right. in college or whatever or roommates or it might be over a boy or or whatever it might be, or over a girl. I mean, I'm not trying to say that only girls right. fight over, over, you know, partners, partners yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But the thing is, sometimes you, you, you're doing the hearing, you know, whether it be a preliminary hearing or whether you're doing a trial, they decide to do a trial. And you're doing that, and you see all of a sudden, this happened because they didn't communicate. And the thing is, a judge can stop a hearing. A judge can, or if we're having a trial, a judge, a judge can, when they're giving their ruling, can say, you know what, this is the situation. Is, and, they can, and they can ask questions. And I think that's why I want to be a general sessions judge more than a criminal court judge. Because a criminal court judge, you know, maybe on a probation violation can hear something. Or maybe if they waived a trial, can, can, get into, can dig into it. Right. But otherwise, they're just basically there to run the trial and let that go. But in general sessions, you can have these open and raw conversations, right. which I've been very good over my career talking to clients and getting to the crux of the matter. And I've been very good at talking to victims of crimes and, and finding out what's going on from them. And I've settled a lot of cases because I was able to get the parties to talk and, and work it out so that it wasn't a problem. And I've restored friendships. Right. I've, re I've restored families 
families have been fissured by by events. You know, uh, great relationships have been fissured by events because most crimes happen. Most crimes right. happen with people that they know or ha have knowledge of or right. invited into their lives or whatever. Some crimes, you know, the people don't know each other, just being random. Right. Um, and, and and those are cases that are very dangerous. But if we can get people together and get people like someone vandalizes someone's car does it help for someone to go to jail mm -hmm. for vandalizing someone's car they need their car fixed right they want to you know that's their transportation right they if they didn't have insurance they might not be able to drive that car for a while or whatever but the thing is this person might be able to fix it or their grandparent or friend might be able to help them lend the money or they can do something and you know and just you start getting them to talk and you start getting them to repair and you start getting them to feel and you 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 turn the whole thing around and you turn a mess into maybe something that 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 helps them right. become better people both sides right um and, and forgiveness is a big part i mean right. the victims pay a big pole big role when people need to acknowledge that they did something wrong and trying to fix or restore the restore the person right now um you potentially could be judged for eight years. Like yes, almost, sir. Almost a decade, right? When people Google your name, something comes up, right? Um, at least when I Googled it, right, doing my research. And it goes about your disciplinary actions. Yes, right? sir. Yeah, one in 20, uh, 2003, 2004, 2006, two in 2006, 2015, and 2017. There might be voters out there that see this. Like, let me let me look into this Paul guy. Let me, mm -hmm. let me see, you know, see what his platform is, and that pops up. They say, "Oh, wow, okay, no, he has to be, you know, uh, suspended on probation, be reprimanded for this and reprimanded for that." I don't, I don't know if he, if he should be. Is he has the character of a judge, right? Um, what would you say to those those folks in? want to elaborate on or extrapolate on any of these particular situations that have happened, you know, through sure, these years. Sure, sure. Um, you know, what happens inevitably in a very, very busy practice, um, you know, sometimes you get on the radar, uh, so to speak. And uh, I, while some of, some of the disciplinary actions that I've received I felt were uncalled for uh, because I've seen other attorneys that didn't get disciplined for some of the things I've done, uh, you know, any mistakes that I've ever made or anything that I got accused of that I didn't do, but the thing is, other people are the ones that are the judge of, of you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the board does certain things, uh, they have certain actions, uh, the Supreme Court does certain things. Uh, you know, the, there starts to be accumulation and they start thinking, oh, well, there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, you know, some attorneys, they steal from clients hundreds of thousands of dollars. They get a sanction, don't get suspended, nothing happens to them. Some people file briefs late, no problem. Um, they, 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 get, they don't even get a board complaint or anything about it. But I have. I've been late filing a brief before. Um, I've been, you know, and, and the thing is, the practice usually is that you can file a brief late or ask for permission to file it late or things of that nature. But sometimes what happens is you get on the radar and it becomes an issue and um, 
I gotta, I, I've done, I, things have happened to me that don't happen to other people. Mm -hmm. and, and someone told me when I first started practicing, they said, don't practice as an African-American by yourself because you are gonna be on their radar. You're gonna, any issue that comes up, they're gonna be after you or whatever. My thing is I don't lie. I, I don't lie, I never lie. And so if I've done something wrong, I admit it and I deal with it and I, and I take it. Sometimes telling the truth doesn't help you. But I think going to bed at night and telling the truth and being honest is the best way to do things. Uh, my last suspension that I had, I, I got, I've only been suspended twice. One was, once was for 30 days um, after a hearing uh, where judges came and testified on my behalf and, and, and things of that nature. That, that, was the, that, that was my second to last issue that I had because all the reprimands and all the other stuff, there was no suspension before. Uh, but I got a, that was a suspension, I think, in, that you were talking about in 2015 or 17. Yeah, or 17 yeah. Um, and then, I, then while that suspension was going on, something that had happened prior that should have been part of that suspension came and they, and they filed. It was a separate thing. The, the Board of Professional Responsibility, they had a hearing panel. They decided that I shouldn't be suspended after they heard all the facts. Um, but, of course, the Supreme Court didn't like the fact that even though that's their panel that they didn't like the fact that they had done that and they said they want to take their own look at it and they decided to do their own thing and that ended up in a six-month suspension and I believe that both suspensions were made to, to basically end my practice but the thing is my practice um, survived and, and it should have because the thing is I have a lot of people that that supported me and um, we you know, even though it cost me, uh, it was maybe meant to be a fatal blow to my practice, it wasn't because the thing is, you know, I, I believe in people power. Mm -hmm. And I believe in people that care about people, and I believe in fighting for people. Right. And the thing is, I will fight for my clients all the time, and so my practice is very strong and remains strong. And people, people that knew about it, they, they asked the judges to hold off on their cases until I got back to practice because they wanted me representing them. And so... The thing is, I think it's important to be on above board. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's important to, to, to tell the truth. And the thing is, just because other people might not agree with you or, or feel the same way doesn't mean that you should ever stop. I think everyone should always try to strive to do their best and always try to keep fighting for what they believe in. Did you, um, did you take anything away or learn from any of these things? Um, that, that has helped you, right, in your practice as a, as a person, just in your growth in this profession? I, th I, think, it, I think it has, and, and I'll tell you two things it's done. My, my first suspension, before I got suspended for those 30 days, my first suspension, um, when, the, when the Court of Appeals made their ruling on me filing the stuff late and, and going through that stuff, they did something to me that they've done, done to anybody else. They gave me 48 hours in jail Wow. For contempt. And that 48 hours in jail was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Because I got to eat what the jail people eat. Mm. I got to see what it was like in there. I got to feel what it was like, how my clients feel when they're behind bars. Mm. And when you feel that you're innocent of something and you're in there, it sank in with me what some of my clients must feel like when they're accused falsely of a crime 
or when they can't be with their families or wow. when they can't be there. So that's one of the things that I took out of there that I'll never forget. I'll never forget what, it's, what I smelled like when I came out of there just for 40 hours. Right. I'll never forget what I smelled like. I'll never forget I had to take two showers to get that smell off me. Mm. That stuff you can't forget. When I had my six-month suspension, it was a different feeling. And, and, and I wasn't suspended yet for the 30 days. That happened because of what happened there. That's how I got the suspension right. for the 30 days because that got reported. So then we're talking about this other suspension that happened that I felt shouldn't have happened, but, and, and I think the, they felt it shouldn't have happened either, but the Supreme Court felt it should. What I took from that is it doesn't matter if you lose everything. You can lose every single thing that you have. But the thing is, your family, your faith, the ability to fight for what's right, and the, and the, and the wherewithal to survive any storms that come your way, and, and get up and stand up and keep walking, and then run, those things taught me about perseverance. And I'm a stronger person because of it. Hmm. And the thing is, I... I, I respect authority, but the thing is, I also understand compassion and the reality of life. And you said something that I want to get into next. You said, you know, you had a community that supported you. You believe in people power. I do. Um, and, you know, during, during this campaign, you know, all of the candidates are, you know, tapping into the community and mm -hmm. being seen and Shaking hands and kisses babies, right? You know, all that good stuff. I've only kissed two babies on this campaign. <laughs> However, you know, um, a person like me, you know, I want I want to see um, I want to see uh, my elected officials, judges. I want to see them doing that after the election is over with, right? Um, I want to see them tapped into the community. I know it can't be the same way because you know you're a lot busier. You know, you got more things to do. However. You know, I still want to see that same kind of energy and willingness. Um, so how do you plan on? Oh, that's you know, going to be easy. How do you plan on keeping that same people power and staying connected and, that, you know, kissing, <laughs> kissing five babies, you know, you know let me tell you, know, you. and all of that. Let because, me tell you. You know, the, what, we see that. We see that. We see the, and then once yeah. people get those seats, it's like. No, no. The thing where, is, where all at? you can ask anybody that knows me how I am, and they know that that's how I always am. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm never different. I like going places. I like seeing people. I like talking to people. I like talking to random people. I talk to the people. Who, if, you, if you rode around with me for a day, I talk to everybody, anyone I can shake a hand with, anyone I can wish them a good day, anything. I love it. I love people. I care about people. One thing that's different about me is the, I think one of the reasons why I like so many people from so many different cultures is because I come from a multicultural family. I speak different languages. I, I see people differently. I understand people. I understand different religions. I'm interested in everybody's religion to understand what their, what, what their philosophies are and understanding who their God is and things of that nature and, and I get into philosophical discussions. That, that stuff interests me. Mm -hmm. But the thing that makes me different is I think what propels me is going back to when I was a young kid when we first moved here. I'm the only candidate in this race that's had a cross burn in his yard. I'm the only candidate in this race that has not been able to buy gas at three gas stations 
when I was in college in the 80s. I'm the only person in this race that's actually had a rope put around his neck and tried to be lifted off the ground when I was in college in my senior year at East Tennessee State University. And this happened when we were on a, a trip, and it was one of the fellow students that did it. But another student caught him and told him to put me down. Wow. Damn. I, and the thing is, like you talked about some of the bad things that have happened to me. Those things don't happen to other lawyers. Right. For the same things. Right. They don't happen to other people. Mm. And the thing is, there's different ways of shackling people. There's different ways of imprisoning people. There's different ways of keeping people down. And the thing is, this city and a lot of the people in the city have been suppressed and kept down and shackled in different ways. Right. And it's modern day shackling. Right. And the thing is, we've got to put an end to it and we've got to treat everybody with respect. We've got to treat everybody like they're the most important thing going on. General Sessions Court can slow down. We don't need to be rushing through dockets and getting done at 11 o'clock. If we get done at 11 o'clock, great. But the thing is, I'm going to still be around just in case someone didn't make it to court because their car broke down or they got a you know, flat tire or they were sick. What does justice mean to you? And what does justice look like as you as judge for General Sessions Court Division 6? What does justice look like? You know, justice may be blind, but you know when, and justice should be blind. And when I think when they talk about justice being blind, we're talking about the fact that justice shouldn't, be able to see who's coming before it. You know, I think it's, it's, it's not that justice should be blind and just do whatever they want to do because people say, oh, that's just a blind luck. It's not throwing darts. No, it's not, like, it's not that. Blind as to whoever comes in front of it should be treated equally and fairly. But as we know, when one of your senses is taken away, all of your other sense, senses are heightened your smell, your taste, feel, all those other things, you know, all the other senses, they are enhanced in how you hear. And, I, and the thing is, you know, we have things called hearings in court. And the thing is, yeah, you can have all the hearings you want, but the question is, are you listening? Right. And the thing is, justice, I think, requires people to listen. A good judge should listen. A good judge should feel. A good judge should have compassion. And I think justice is served properly when everything is working together. And I think we as a community need to be working together. The DAs, the lawyers in court, whether they be public defenders or private attorneys, everybody and the police officers, everybody needs to be working together to try to make sure it's fair and correct. And the thing is a lot of police officers, even though I'm a defense attorney, a lot of police officers respect me because I understand their job, mm-hmm. and when they do their job incorrectly, I basically point it out to them and make them better police officers. I bet you I'm probably one of the only attorneys that some police officers have on speed dial on their phone, and they call and ask me questions sometimes, right. a defense attorney, right. because they're like, is, do you think this is right? right. And, and I think that shows that 
people trust me and they trust my opinion and they know that I care about how things are supposed to be. What does eight years look like as you and judges criminal, I keep wanting to say criminal, General Sessions Court, Division 6. What does that look like? Almost a decade, you know, so it's not like you get a vote again in two years or four years. Like, no, nah, we get we get eight years of Paul, you know. So what does that eight years look like? I think that eight years looks like a court that's going to be run in a way that other courts are going to start trying to operate like and that we start working together. Mm. And the thing is, if you think about 11 divisions, right, eight of them doing what I do, what I'm hoping and praying that I, I get to do, eight courts doing that, and the other courts sometimes rolling onto our, our network of, of rotation of cases, I think you'll see a very fine-tuned machine that will start to affect the whole city. Mm-hmm. And I think that it'll grow more than just to be just the courts. It'll grow into making our city a better and safer city and a city where people feel comfortable and feel like justice is being served on a daily basis like it should be. Mm-hmm. And people understand that even though this is a pay cut, for me, it's a win for the whole city um, because this is not about money. This is not about power. This is about this seat belongs to the people and the people need to feel that they're getting what they're paying for. Right. And I think, I think that's why a vote for me is a win-win. Well, it's a win-win. <laughs> Play on words right there. <laughs> and, and speaking of voting, why, why, why should people vote for you instead of the other two opponents that you had? Well, I think there's been a lot of talk by the other opponents talking about um, what they want to do and their experience and, and whatever. But I've been fighting for the common man for all my career, not part of my career, all of my career. And I've been working with DAs and fighting and trying to get them to understand things for all of my career. And I'm integrated with all the communities in Nashville. I have friends everywhere, and I know and, and the, the different things I've done, the different jobs I've had, you know, you know being a commissioner, being a, a private attorney, taking on cases pro bono, doing all these things. Uh, you know, I, I, I've done murder trials pro bono because the thing is I believed in the person right. and I didn't want to leave them hanging. Right. People should vote for me over them because we're all qualified to do this job. Some of us have practiced a lot longer than others. But the difference is, is who's going to work harder, who wants to be there for the people, who wants to make changes, real changes, Mm -hmm. not superficial, and who's just going to be true to who they are the whole time and unapologetic for being true. I'm a true person. How can people support you at this moment, um, Paul? Um, how can I find out more about you, reach out to you, support you in different ways? How can they do that? Well, we have uh, different platforms, but my website is www.paulwallwinforjudge.com. 
um, Instagram, Paul Walwin for judge.com on Facebook, Paul Walwin for judge.com. Uh, they can reach out to me, um, and, and my staff and, um, there's all kinds of links and things that they can do, but how I, how people can really support me is they can tell their friends to come out and vote early and often, <laughs> I always say, but the early voting starts April 13th um, and runs for two weeks. And then May 3rd is the actual one day of voting at all the precincts. But um, April, I, I would like for people to come out in droves. I'd like people to come out and make sure that their vote is heard, tell their friends, family. Some people are saying, well, I don't even live in Davidson County. I say, yeah, but you don't live in Davidson County, but you have friends that do. And they're like, well, well yeah, I do. I said, share, talk about it let them know it's it this is important and and this is important for them i want to serve them i want to serve them it's definitely important it's eight years um it's a long time um and you know judicial elections you know our criminal legal system local it, it hinges on you all um so I, I i advocate for everybody to get out there and, and and do your research um and it's eight years. It's a long time. You know, you can't, we got to get this right. You know, we got to get this right and um, we got to do our due diligence um, when we when we talk about our judges and other judicial um, officials here in Nashville and Davidson County. Um, Paul, I want to leave you with the last word. You know, if there's anything that you want to share with our viewers and listeners, um, maybe that I didn't get to with my questioning today through the interview. Well, I think the one thing I'd like to say is that Voting in this election that has such an effect across the whole county for all these judge, judge, judicial seats and clerk seats and things of that nature, these kind of elections people don't get excited about. There's not a lot of people that come out for these elections. You know, out of the 700,000 registered voters in the Nashville area, probably only 30,000 are going to show up, if that. Maybe maybe we'll get thirty it forty thousand. Like, it was like twenty five thousand the last the last yeah. twenty yeah. Last but I, time but this I think happens. yeah. But, but yeah. the thing is, uh, we're hopeful that people are get a little more energized about this one. Right. But the fact that only that many people control how their city is run, and like you said, for eight years, almost a decade, yeah. And how justice is served, and how civil dockets. You know, we run civil dockets in general sessions as well. How small claims are done, and how tickets are done, and things of that nature, those things touch everybody. Everyone, like most people have gotten a ticket. Most people have had something civil happen to them before. Most people have had a credit card that they forgot in college that they didn't pay off or whatever. People, there's so much contact with people in these courts, and these people that, are, that you're electing are going to be there and just, if, and if they're the wrong pick, they're going to be hammering people for eight years. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's not what so we people need. people have to come to vote. People have to come out to vote. Vote specifically. Vote with intent. Vote with your heart. Vote with your heart. Well, Paul, like this was this is this was amazing. Um, I learned a lot. Took away a lot. I hope the listeners and viewers did too. And uh, just thank you for your time and thank you for the work that you're putting in. Um, and good luck. Thank you so much for this deep conversation. I. I love I love your setup, man. Thank you, man. I, I appreciate, I appreciate you having us out. And we got to have you back. You know, we got. Hey, you. we can talk about all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Because the thing is, there's so many things going on in the city. So but, many. But but anytime you want to talk about something, 
I'll talk about anything. Yeah, hey, y'all heard it. It's on record. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thank you.